0: Welcome to another episode of Conductgmental. I am Dan Lust, joined by the one, the
1: only Dan Wallach. How goes it, Dan? I'm doing fine, Dan. We finally, you know, three years of legal sports betting, three and a half years, we have our second betting scandal. Remember, there was a prior player who was suspended. Now we have a second player who's been implicated in actually openly acknowledging that he's betting on legal football games so they both share the same common thread but yeah I'll kick it back to you because we have kind of a, a heavy NFL theme on this week's episode as well as the major league lockout so how do you want to handle things today certainly a wild story in the NFL with Calvin Ridley will hit that Dan I think what you're referencing is what we said at the time
0: could have been a monster story with uh, Evander Kane of the San Jose Sharks which turned out to be much of nothing I know you know the history very well of sports betting you know I'm sure Pete Rose comes up but we'll talk about all things Calvin Ridley We'll talk about maybe the some of the hypocrisy of what the NFL has done, but you know we're, we're here to kind of hit hit all angles of it. Number two, Deshaun Watson. We keep following this case. We now have another big update. The grand jury is being convened to determine the fate of Deshaun Watson. It's as easy as that. He's being deposed on a Friday. The grand jury is convening on a Friday. Not a very good Friday for Deshaun Watson. We will unpack both sides of that. And last but not least, uh, we're missing spring training games. We're in the midst, true midst, of a Major League Baseball lockout. So we're going to talk about that, how the media is covering that story, and really these kind of strange negotiating tactics of fake deadlines, as uh, you know, we try to call them out. Before we get into topics, let us remind our listeners that this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. I was talking to Themis. We might be doing some Instagram Lives with them. They have seen our new show, Opening Arguments. Kudos to Stephanie and Emily for their second episode. They did a fantastic, fantastic job. Themis Bar Review. Stay tuned for more uh, collabs with those guys. Okay, so now, Dan, let's get into the heavy-hitting topics. I've said time and time again, they don't call you the sports betting guru for nothing. I'm going to do my best to lay out a little bit of the facts in this case, and then I'm going to hit you with some of the hard-hitting questions. Calvin Ridley, wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons, a, a tremendously talented wide receiver. You know, he's one of the best in the NFL. You know him across the board. So what happened here, Calvin Ridley played five games in the NFL last season and then kind of mysteriously walked away from the team. And it was under this auspice of mental health issues. We have not heard a peep from Calvin Ridley since that time. But you know who has heard about Calvin Ridley? The Atlanta Falcons. Because they were fielding phone calls from other NFL teams saying, hey, maybe you want to maybe you want to trade us, Calvin Ridley. And the reporting, I think it was Adam Schefter, said, you know, the Falcons had heard about these betting allegations, incidents, whatever you want to call it. And they, in good faith, said, you know, they didn't respond. They said no to the trade offers. So they've known about it since February 9th. We're now in March. Almost 30 days went by. And now, finally, Roger Goodell comes out with the punishment—a one-year ban from all things NFL-related. He can apply for reinstatement, you know, at the end or at February 2023. I think he's got another 24 hours to see if he's going to appeal this decision. So we'll see. Now, Dan, I got a ton, a ton of questions for you. You know, all the way from proxy betting to what this means for betting in other states. But what I'm going to start with you, Dan, what do you think about a one-year ban? Do you think the punishment fits the crime for $1,500, Dan? Three parlays totaling $1,500, betting on his own team to win. Do you think
1: the punishment fits the crime? And to add to that, at a time when he was separated from the team and took leave, the NFL reflexively, it seems like the default position of the league is to suspend player for one full year, regardless of the circumstances. I mean, Alex Karras and Paul Horning from the early 1960s were, were banned for a year for betting on football at a time when sports gambling was illegal. Josh Shaw and now Calvin Ridley, they're facing the exact same suspension for betting properly and legally under the law, either by walking into a sports book or by downloading the app. And they've face the same one year even though some of the betting transactions don't line up with what horning and Karis did. So in an environment where the league has seven official sports betting partners, they're benefiting financially from legal sports betting. their teams actually are licensed sports books in states like Arizona, soon to be Ohio, Virginia, Maryland. It's coming very soon. every league if, if the teams can legally accept wagers, As a licensed sportsbook operator, well, why can't a player legally place wagers in de minimis amounts, maybe as part of a parlay scenario, you know, where the outcome of his team's game doesn't drive the result? He should face a suspension of some some determinate period, but I think one year is heavy-handed in light of the underlying circumstances. And by the way, Dan, did you know that at the time that... Calvin Ridley was placing these wagers on the Hard Rock Digital Sportsbook. It was between November 23rd and November 28th. And why is that timeframe so notable? The first bet occurred two days or one day after the Washington DC federal court decision declaring that online sports betting in the state of Florida as conducted by the Hard Rock Digital Sportsbook violated federal law because the compact that was negotiated in Florida only allows legally should only allow legally gambling on Indian land. So the yeah. court said that this entire sports book was illegal. The irony here is that Calvin Ridley got dinged for betting legally in his mind, at a time when the sportsbook operator and its own integrity partner were purportedly, or at least in my opinion, illegally operating the sportsbook at a time when the National Football League is benefiting from all this. So not only does it underscore the hypocrisy, but if you look at the disproportion of the penalty relative to the underlying merits, I think one year is too, too much for a de minimis bet over a parley of multiple games okay so a couple things maybe people will be surprised when i'm about
0: to say i think the punishment fits the crime i do it doesn't happen right every everyone knows the rule everyone knows Pete rose everyone knows there's no exception and dan i talked about it on, on twitter which you know i don't know if, if people think this is a big deal i think it's a big deal the nfl has a rule zero tolerance for sports betting none not one penny not one dollar there is no tolerance. But in fantasy sports, for whatever reason, the NFL has historically allowed players to wager up to two hundred and fifty dollars on fantasy sports. So, you know, we could talk about the hypocrisy, which I think is fair. Right. That the you know NFL gains a lot from the fantasy sports world. Right. That's how I got turned into football. And I, I follow it every Sunday. Really, I haven't been betting for that long. Right. But I have been playing fantasy sports since I've been in middle school. So they allow two hundred fifty dollars for fantasy sports but $0 when it comes to sports betting. So, you know, I I bring that to say, I guess there's some sense of impropriety that you could have with fantasy sports. So I think that rule is a little surprising, but I will say that everyone and their mothers and their best friends, and I I bring up everybody for a reason, your girlfriends and your neighbors, everybody knows that rule. If you're an NFL player, you can't bet on teams. You can't bet on games. I don't think it's surprising. I think you could tell me it's a two-year banishment and I think I'd be fine with it because everyone knows that rule. Maybe it's an unfair rule, but a rule is a rule. Dan, we are, I'm really surprised. I'm not really surprised at the one year. right? Pete Rose is banished for life from the Hall of Fame for betting on games. You know, he bet on his own team. I think personally as a recreational better, the fact that the Atlanta Falcons, whether they were involved in an A-team parlay, and I'm, I'm part of my fair share of teasers, parlays, whatever you want to call it, they're still in the bet. So I know the NFL in, in their statement from Goodell was like, oh, we found no evidence that he had inside information. Calvin Ridley's best friends around that team. I don't care that he wasn't with the team. Of course, he's going to have inside information. So, you know, it doesn't really, no one's going to tell me that he didn't have inside info. He bet on the team. He tweeted it. It wasn't at a time where I was mentally capable of even watching football. I don't care. You have inside information because I'm not in the locker room. You are. So I don't buy it. And I think the fact that his team was involved, whatever spectrum of punishment he was going to get, you know, 10 games, 12 games, I'm okay with him getting more because
1: the Falcons were involved. You don't, you don't think it makes a difference that the Falcons were involved in that bet. Well, it does make a difference. I'm not suggesting that he you know, walk unscathed, but the mitigating factors are the amount of the bet, the parlay, the fact that it was legal, his admission. He wasn't trying to do anything underhanded or conceal. If he wanted to really game the system and take advantage of his inside information, he would have used a proxy to place a bet. He wouldn't have done it itself. You know, so open and obviously by, by opening up a mobile account, of course, of course, he's going to get get dinged. I think this speaks to a really important communications shortfall within the league and within the team, because now this is the second player to just you know just you know sign up for for an account, not realizing he was violating NFL policy. So to me, it underscores what may be a lack of the league and the teams drilling home this principle and educating their players, because if they're making the players study the playbook. And drilling that into them, you know, uh, around the clock, they should be reminding the players of the NFL's betting policy more than just once a year on the first day of training camp.
0: Let's go there for a second, because I I mentioned, you know, the neighbors, the family, friends, the girlfriend, the wife, everyone knows the rule. I spoke to, you know, someone that you know very well from the gambling world, Carolyn Renzen. I'm I'm on a, a sports betting panel with her. She's the, you know, the head compliance officer at FanDuel.
1: And, you know, we're prepping everybody's, for this. Panel. Everybody's on a panel there. I was just on a panel with her at NYU a week ago. She's, she's great. She's great. Yeah, she's Listen, awesome.
0: If FanDuel wants to sponsor this podcast, they're more than welcome to. If another gambling entity wants to sponsor this podcast, they're also more than welcome to. But invitations out there. We're always open for business here at Conduct Detrimental. You know, but Dan, I say that I asked, I said what's most surprising to me in 2022, you know, I'm not going to call an athlete dumb. I'm not going to do it, but, but careless that if Calvin really, really wanted to place a bet. I'm sure there's 10 people in his circle he could have placed a bet through in their name, with their address, and no one would ever find out about it. My understanding is that, you know, this bet was placed in November. Someone on the compliance end saw the name Calvin Ridley. Everyone knows who Calvin Ridley is that follows sports, that I'm sure work at the casinos. If it's the backup right guard, I don't know if I'm going to know that. Right. But but somebody saw the name and then let the NFL know about it. And then then it kind of went through the different channels. But there's a real issue with proxy betting that if an athlete wanted to place a bet with some inside information and they placed a bet, you know, with someone that's not named Calvin Ridley, that's named Joe Thomas. And he lives across the street or like with, you know, Dan Wallach who lives across the street. There's no real way of flagging that. So maybe, Dan, and I'm going to give this to you as if we're on our symposium together. At some point, you and I will be on a panel together, not as kind of detrimental, just as me as moderator and you as Mr. Sports Betting Expert. But Dan, what can these gambling operators do to prevent
1: this, to prevent proxy betting? Because it seems like it's such an easy thing for a player to get away with. Well, listen, you can't enter the names of friends and associates into a database, but I want to get back to a, to a policy that I think is a, a little bit of a weakness in the NFL's rulebook. Their player policy or their, their player manual specifies that NFL players can not bet on NFL games, but they can bet on any other game. Well, it doesn't specify that, but it doesn't reach all other professional sports games. So what I would propose is having sort of an across-league ban, on professional athletes betting on not only their own sports, but any professional sports. And then why should it be left up to someone spotting a familiar name? As you pointed out accurately, not every name stands out as having like this immediate meaning. Oh, it's Calvin Ridley, a great NFL player. What the sports books can do in cooperation with the leagues, and they might be doing this anyway, is to enter the names of every active player in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, National Hockey League at all into a database so that if someone named Calvin Ridley or Joe Shane, the general manager of the New York Giants, or the backup you know, tackle on the Detroit Lions, if anyone under that name registers an online sports betting account with any legal bookmaker... The red flag should go off immediately and an investigation and some due diligence should be undertaken to determine if that person is one and the same as the professional athlete. And in that instance, he would be disqualified and and, and cut off before he places his first wager. I mean, Ridley was betting on NBA games before he bet on NFL games. And if he was prohibited from placing wages on any sport, it never would have gotten to the point where he was betting on an NFL game.
0: I want to say this that it's a, it's a topic Dan, and I don't I don't know where your thoughts are going to go. then I, I want to talk about his tweets after, but from a holistic standpoint, you know, if I'm the commissioner of the NFL, you know, I don't want my players, I probably don't want to play fantasy football. I don't want to doing anything. but if you're just asking me this particular question, I think it makes a world of a difference that Calvin Redley bit bet on his team. I do. I just just how my mind works. Now I'm going to call that something akin to inside information, insider trading. Now we go across the pond, right? And we go to the, our political world. And Dan, you and I, we're not political people. But politicians can, with with very few restrictions, bet on stocks where they know certain information. I just, I don't like this hypocrisy that athletes can't bet on the sport that they know and love. They can't even bet on a game they have nothing to do with, right? If the Giants play the Patriots, what does Calvin Ridley know about that game? He's not allowed to bet on that. But a politician who's directly involved in maybe some lobbying efforts he might know when something's going to become legalized when you and I don't. What do you think about that hypocrisy? That's a that's a really big conversation happening now on on Twitter about this Calvin Ridley topic.
1: Well, they should all be prohibited. Listen, in, in the National Football League, betting on other teams or on games not involving your own team is still problematic because players change teams, you know, quite frequently with free agency and you know waivers and and you know every NFL player seems to play for multiple teams and they play and there are relationships that are formed as a result of playing on teams around the league and and everybody it's a very small community i think you have you know less than 2000 players you don't want players on team A betting on any games involving team B, team C or team D because they're within sort of a cloistered community and even if inside information isn't being transmitted, I think the, the, the public will find that, you know, sort of too close for comfort. I know I would. And I'd like to see a ban established across all professional sports. And if you, and I want to get back to a statement you made earlier about the league having zero tolerance. Well, I think zero tolerance is very pliable and amenable to change because for a league that has zero tolerance, do you know that at this time next year, a year from now, the following teams, the Bengals, the Browns, the Cardinals, Redskins, Ravens, and Bears, six NFL teams will have licenses to operate sports books within their arenas and or over the internet. So each of those six teams can legally accept wagers placed on their teams to win or lose, but the player in the same legal sports betting framework can't make a de minimis bet on his own team as part of a parlay, while the Bengals, Browns, Cardinals, Redskins, Ravens, and Bears can accept millions of dollars of wagers from bettors Either you know against the team or for the team, that underscores a systemic hypocrisy, not to mention the NFL itself, having these privately negotiated data deals with all the sportsbook operators, right. where they get a percentage of the handle. So all those deals are perfectly above board, but it showcases and highlights for me a fundamental inequity in hypocrisy in how the league approaches player involvement. Yeah, it should be prohibited, but one year. I mean, come on, That that that's this is not at the level of Pete Rose, Paul Horning, or Alex Karras. Wow. In a legal sports betting environment, there are many shades of gray, and you have to look at all the facts and circumstances. And I think he should take an appeal. I mean, his appeal rights under Article 46 basically give Commissioner Goodell, who imposed the suspension, the right to impose or the right to decide who the appellate judge is so we know the result is going to be the same. But I think the the circumstances, the mitigating factors, are here for a reduction of his suspension.
0: Okay, so I'm happy you said that. Two things. What we didn't hit on, which maybe is the the more I'm going to say more fun legal point, or maybe tragic depending on your standpoint. Calvin Ridley fired off a series of tweets yesterday. You know, this is a lesson for anyone accused of a crime. Don't <laughs> admit don't admit to what you did on Twitter. I, I understand that Calvin Ridley. My understanding is they had some some admissions to the NFL. And he was candid with them. But no one no one benefits when you air those admissions on social media. I'm just going to read the tweets. There's four of them. First tweet, Calvin Ridley. I bet 1,500 total. I don't have a gambling problem. Within an hour, damn. within 59 minutes, that tweet had 101,000 likes. That's why the story went viral on Twitter, because it was Ridley fanning the flame. Then Ridley goes, five minutes later, I'm looking at the timestamps. I couldn't even watch football at that point. Not four minutes later, just gone. Be more healthy when I come back, and then half an hour after that, I know I was wrong, but I'm getting one year. L O L. So if I'm his lawyer, I'm taking his phone and I'm throwing it in the toilet where I'm breaking into a million pieces with my hammer. I'm not letting him send anymore. Someone messed up here. Someone messed up that he went. That he just kind of kept tweeting. None of those help his case. Remind you, this is the the big point here. He's going to have to apply for reinstatement. You say I know it was wrong, but I'm getting one year. LOL. I'm not sure what's so funny about it. I'm not. I don't think. I don't think Roger Goodell is going to find that funny. And he's just admitted to the crime, so he's added significantly more attention to this case. And I think Dan, what I was concerned with, and I and I am, and I think you should be as well as, as you know from your legislative standpoint, that a guy like Calvin Ridley, who's now the butt of every joke, right? He's now being talked about in every sports show. And just to the point you just made, he certainly looks. It makes the NFL look really dumb. They got into bed with these sports betting operators and all of a sudden Calvin Ridley's placing these bets. So, damn, my fear is that one of these sports betting haters, right, one of these people, right, it's not sometimes these sports betting laws. I think right now the 30 states in the country that have some form of sports betting, it's a little bit more. that haven't just gone live. But, you know, the problem in the remaining 17 states by and large is they just can't pick the bill they want to pick. Right. There's some everyone wants the money. But they can't make a decision on which bill they want to pick. Now, in those remaining 17 states, my fear is that this Calvin Ridley example is going to say, have everyone pump the brakes, say, whoa, let's put sports betting to the bottom of the docket. Let's not pass a sports betting bill. You know, we're about morals. And look, with the NFL's insider trading, maybe this goes deeper with proxy betting. You know, Dan, I am concerned that this is going to, it shouldn't, but I'm concerned it's going to slow down the great progress that sports betting legislation has made.
1: The gravy train runs at 200 miles an hour. It ain't slowing down for this. Let's be clear, this is not a match fixing controversy. This is a diminutive bet as part of a parlay on his own team to win. Nobody's gonna be pumping the brakes, but it does speak to the larger problem of, well, you know, for every Josh, is it just Josh Shaw? Is it just Calvin Ridley? Of course not. There were probably dozens of players in the NFL who are who are violating this policy, either through proxies or doing it themselves. And eventually the NFL will have a bigger problem, a problem that involves betting against one's team, providing inside information to another player, or potentially manipulating or affecting the outcome of the event, eventually. That will happen in, in the history of betting and the history of professional sporting events. Temptations have always existed and there have been match fixing scandals throughout the history of sports. And they will continue to happen. I mean, last year alone, Sport Radar, you know, one of the primary integrity companies in, you know, on the planet, they, they put out these integrity reports every year. Last year in 2021, Sport Radar detected 902 worldwide sporting events. That were potential match fixing. It was an increase. It was the highest number that they had ever had since tracking, you know, these since providing these kinds of reports. And it shows to me that in a legal sports betting environment, where more states are legalizing sports betting and more individuals are gambling on sports, you may begin to see, you know, heightened incentives to manipulate and fix matches. So this is going to be something to watch going forward. That the ne- the next time it may be it may not be something as low key as Calvin Ridley it could become a serious match fixing slash integrity issue where somebody is doing the wrong thing and I, and and I want to close with the NFL and say that they're not blameless here they actually profited from Calvin Ridley's gambling because you know who detected the fact that Calvin Ridley was was gambling on sports wait wait let me let me guess the NFL the NFL's integrity partner detected that. And the NFL's integrity partner pays the National Football League a specific sum of money every year for the official data rights that these integrity partners sell to sportsbooks around the country and around the world. And this particular sportsbook, the Hard Rock Sportsbook app, was operating illegally during this 12-day window when Calvin Ridley was betting. And its integrity partner was aiding these activities that were clearly illegal at the time. And the National Football League was benefiting from these illegal activities. So their unclean hands around the spectrum on this one. And I think that could, if I was representing Calvin Ridley in his appeal and ultimately in seeking judicial review by uh, by a federal district court, I would highlight the fact that the NFL... Directly profited from this very activity vis a vis its integrity partner, which was aiding and abetting a sports book, which was operating illegally by virtue of a federal court ruling. That's the bigger story nobody is picking up on.
0: We'll obviously keep tabs on this one. Um, I think it's going to probably launch, maybe we'll say an internal investigation if there hasn't already been one to see what else is going on. But anyway, we'll, we'll keep tabs on that. Dan, let us transition over to Deshaun Watson, our second topic. So the news today, Dan, big news. Deshaun Watson is having his case presented to a grand jury. So, Dan, it was almost a year ago, March 2021, probably almost a year to the day where you and I started to talk about this case. 22 civil cases were filed against Deshaun Watson, Honestly, not much has gone on in those cases since then. There was a lot of stir and media storm about Rusty Hardin and his side and Tony Busby and his side. But all that's really happened from a procedural standpoint. So we've had some discovery exchange. The police office was trying to get some subpoenas into Deshaun Watson's uh, cell phones and his social media. And the first half of depositions have been conducted on the plaintiff's side. Now, coincidentally, you know, the last time we talked about this, Dan, Rusty Hardin had made an application to the court to move Deshaun Watson's deposition to a later point in time, because he was hearing from the DA's office that they were gonna make a decision on the criminal case by April 1st. So that's a month from today. And now, you know, Rusty Harden was right. The DA's office, and maybe, maybe a little bit sooner, is presenting the case to a grand jury. When, Dan? On Friday, the same day of the deposition of Deshaun Watson. So, you know, the report's coming out today from Tom Pellicero, that the grand jury is gonna happen on Friday, Deshaun Watson's deposition is going to happen on Friday because the court refused to move it, and Deshaun Watson is going to be pleading the Fifth Amendment. He's not going to be speaking. He's not going to be, um, you know, incriminating himself at these depositions. So Dan, certainly a lot, but uh, let me let me hand it to you. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you think that that Watson stands a chance here? Do you think he could avoid criminal charges at this point?
1: Well, we don't know but I think we're going to get some clarity as to his NFL future. But all of it is is contingent upon avoiding being charged criminally. And I think that's now starting to come into focus by the end of April, certainly, if not much sooner than that, by April 1st, we may know whether or not he has in fact been charged criminally. And that fact alone will be dispositive of his NFL future, because if he is charged criminally, if he does face indictment and further criminal proceedings, nobody will touch him with a 10-foot pole. He's not only untradeable, but he's unplayable. He will absolutely be sidelined during the pendency of these criminal proceedings, probably as a direct result of being on the NFL exempt list before the commissioner's disciplinary authority even comes into play. So he could be a year on the exempt list, and if he's convicted, or some evidence comes out during the trial, or some or during some pre-trial discovery, he could face a minimum of six games. On top of that, he he becomes persona non grata within the NFL. The more interesting story, I think, and the one we've debated ad nauseum, is what happens if the DA decides not to go forward and charge Deshaun Watson, and then all we're left with is civil allegations. And that punts it over metaphorically to the National Football League to make a decision. Are they going to drag this out and conduct this investigation in perpetuity until the civil case ends? I mean, that kind of highlights the fact that the players should be allowed to suit up unless and until there is some, you know, finding of fault or finding of guilt. And I think that's the more interesting story. What happens if there's no criminal? We talked about this, Dan,
0: on a previous podcast, which people will recall. Ben Roethlisberger, well, I don't want to say it's a similar scenario, but sexual assault allegations, an incident, it wasn't 20, it was one. Actually, I think it was maybe two with Roethlisberger. But anyway, in the in the later one, no criminal charges filed. So everyone, I think, you know, I'm sure at the time, I you and I didn't have a podcast then to talk about it, but people were saying, okay, great. He's back to the field. And then he ended up getting hit with, I think, a 10-game suspension at the time. So, you know, there's certainly a world where Ben Roethlisberger thought he was going to play. Hey, no criminal charges criminal charges are not required for any type of suspension by the NFL. And he got he got popped for 10-game suspension. Setting aside the fact that we've talked about, Dan, Deshaun Watson basically already having served a year suspension without any type of formal punishment. He wasn't suspended by the NFL. He wasn't placed in the commissioner's exemplist. To the contrary, Roger Goodell has always said this whole time that Deshaun Watson can play, that they don't have enough on him to give him a suspension. So whether you don't like Deshaun Watson or you, you do. If you're listening to this podcast, certainly you're a supporter of due process. Those were my comments last week on Trevor Bauer. I don't necessarily like Trevor Bauer, but I, I think the guy's entitled to a fair, you know, fair application of the law, you know, with respect to Deshaun Watson, the guy has been sitting on the sidelines for a year and the NFL
1: has said he can play. He's not even on the commissioner's exemplist. So well, that's, not, that's not true. The NFL hasn't given the uh, they did. Know, clarity to the Houston Texans that, Hey, no, know, they, did, the they said he could play. They said they the suspend him. But well, why hasn't he been playing? Unless there's That's an agreement. Unless there's an agreement between Watson and the Texans. Remember a long time ago, Deshaun Watson filed a trade request. He didn't want to play with the Texans anymore. So it's possible that his not playing is the result of an agreement in place between Watson and the Texans to just collect the money and wait for the criminal to subside. But if there's no formal agreement in place, how is being inactive for 17 weeks, anything other than a form of discipline and under the NFL collective bargaining agreement, you can't have double discipline, you can't have a team and the NFL both rendering discipline on the same offense. So I don't think the NFL has cleared up anything with regard to Deshaun Watson. He's been in this state of uncertainty, and basically no team would be willing to trade for him unless and until the NFL said we're not going to place him on the exemplist. And Goodell never, ever went so far as to say that this hasn't risen to the level of an offense or we're not going to pl- place him on the exemplus. The NFL has hid behind this you know, amorphous investigation that has lasted in excess of one year. So they haven't done him any favors. I just think that Deshaun Watson, in the prime of his career in professional sports, when athletes have such a short time to apply their trade, it is almost criminal to have sidelined Watson for what is essentially close to 10% of his playing career when nothing has been proven nothing has been alleged by the NFL and there's been no findings of anything it's a it's a year washed down the drain and there's no guarantee that the NFL won't do something additional, even if he's cleared criminally, uh, there's still the prospect of ongoing disciplinary action. And I think that's grossly unfair to Watson, given where we are in the proceedings today. Well, I just, so so the comment that I'm, I'm referencing, which I think is
0: important, and I think you're, you're right, this amorphous investigation that remains ongoing. Somebody asked me, I did a, a podcast earlier today, why the grand jury is going to be presented on the same day that Deshaun Watson is providing his testimony. It's kind of a strange coincidence. October 27th, Roger Goodell said in a press conference that the league doesn't, quote, feel we have that necessary information to place the Sean Watson on the exempt list. So, you know, if they didn't think they had enough information and they didn't put him on the exempt list, they didn't suspend him. So just to push back slightly on what you just said, double punishments are not allowed. But with Goodell, I think he can say this with a straight face. He didn't punish him. He said we don't have enough to punish him. So if the Texans have some crazy scenario where they're, you know, putting him on the sidelines, maybe at some point Watson will have some type of grievance, but it certainly wasn't coming from the NFL. The NFL said we don't have enough to punish him, which which I didn't think. I actually thought Goodell was wrong. I thought they had enough to punish, put him on the example list then. They didn't, but that was their choice. Dan, let's call like we see it. Roger Goodell, if he didn't have enough on October 28th, I'm not aware of anything new that's come up on the case. That would have, you know, warranted a suspension or ratchet up the investigation. So what they were about to have, Dan, was civil deposition testimony from Deshaun Watson. That might have been enough to have created some type of a punishment. But now Watson is going to go into that deposition and he's going to plead the fifth, right? And the criminal case is going to go ongoing. Watson's not going to say anything. So I'm not sure if the criminal case, you know, there might be a criminal case, right? I we all I think. I explained it online, but for people that don't know, the grand jury is a one-sided deal. The prosecutor is going to go in and they're going to cherry pick the best pieces of evidence and they're going to put on a case. More often than not, the grand jury is going to come back with some type of indictment. They couldn't come back with a no bill. It's certainly possible. But more often Mm -hmm. than not, it's the way that the grand jury is done. It's a secret proceeding. It's done in a one-sided manner. That's why as lawyers, there's an expression, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich it's a stupid expression. I don't know why they picked ham sandwich and not like roast beef sandwich or salami sandwich, but like they picked ham sandwich, Dan. And a grand jury, I, I think if you're putting betting ons on it, Dan, if this is a betting podcast, I said yesterday on a show that minus 140 that um, you know, that he got indicted, it ended up coming true. And I'm gonna say, you know, Dan, minus two fifty on the money line, right? That he gets indicted. I think that's I think Rusty Harden had some comment a couple months back. We welcome the grand jury. And I'm like, no, you don't. That's a lie. No one would welcome someone into that, into the fire pit, into the lion's den when all lawyers know that most likely what's going to happen is you're going to get indicted. No lawyer that's of sane and sound mind would ever actually mean that. But I think he was just saying it for optics. But guess what? Now we're here. I'd love to have Rusty Harden say that all over again.
1: Well, I, I think you're right, Dan. I think the the odds, you know, when you look at the surrounding circumstances, it's a one sided presentation. We're in a conservative state, Texas, a young, affluent Black athlete. All this adverse pre trial or pre grand jury publicity of 22 civil plaintiffs anyone who's going into that grand jury room knows a lot about if they've been reading the local you know, newspapers and been following the media, they know that this young Black athlete, and I, and I say this because we're talking about a conservative state of Texas where the prosecution makes a one-sided presentation and there's no cross-examination with an athlete who's made a trade request and says he doesn't want to even be in Houston anymore. So the average grand juror walking into that room, the well might be poisoned somewhat against Deshaun Watson. And I say that, you know, just be, it, it, it's almost like an obvious statement. I hope that the grand jury will judge this objectively and not react to the pre-grand jury publicity where everyone walked in knowing about his case and the circumstances of his trade request. Uh, but this doesn't line up very favorably for Deshaun Watson, given some of the surrounding objective circumstances. All this stuff ties together, whether we're talking about Calvin Ridley, or you know, Josh Shaw in the prior incident, and now Deshaun Watson, the NFL can be credibly accused of what's known as selective investigation, selective prosecution, selective enforcement. I mean, they, they, they found out about uh, Calvin Ridley's gambling habit, and within a very short amount of time, I mean, aided by an admission by Ridley, they rendered their discipline, a year suspension. Josh Shaw, the same thing. Yet, in contrast, if you look at how the league treats its own ownership and executives, we are now two plus years, almost three years after the time that NFL owner, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, allegedly offered Brian Flores a tanking incentive right. of one hundred thousand dollars per game, and that allegation came out, uh, I think, in January. Uh, certainly, Flores, if it existed at all, he knew about that that uh, you know offer, you know, going back to two thousand nineteen, and yet the NFL has not uh, said anything other than the fact that we are investigating. It's really, it's really amazing how swift investigations can be when it suits the NFL and it's convenient for the NFL. But when it wants to drag its heels, such as in Deshaun Watson, and having a complete lack of transparency around its investigation of of Stephen Ross, it highlights the two-tier system in 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 that players, when it's convenient for the NFL... Players are treated as sacrificial lambs and are, and are disciplined reflexively with barely an investigation. Yet when the NFL wants to drag its heels and stall, it takes forever and a day to complete the Deshaun Watson investigation. And we have no idea whether, where, or when the Stephen Ross investigation is taking place. So uh, it, it really highlights that the same rules, which are you know on the books for everyone, are not necessarily even-handedly applied.
0: You know, I wasn't going to bring it up, but while we're here, there was a a tweet that went kind of viral, which I I think is important. You know, it's talking about how Adrian Peterson could get six games for, you know, allegedly abusing a child, right? Ben Roethlisberger, we're just talking about it. He get 10 games for, you know, sexual assault. And then Calvin Ridley bet $1,500 on games. He's out for a year. And a guy like Josh Gordon, who's having trouble, problems with marijuana he basically gets like a six-year suspension. So the the rules are not being necessarily applied even-handed across the league when it comes to suspensions. You know, just back to my earlier point, though, gambling is its own animal. That's an that's element of impropriety with respect to the game. And you want anything without integrity. And, Dan, to your point, I don't know what the NFL is going to do, you know, if Stephen Ross, there's any any credibility to those claims, right? You can't ban Stephen Ross for a year, Right, after you banned Calvin Ridley for a year, Stephen Ross is the owner of the team. He's not, you know, one of fifty-two employees, right? He's not the the kicker. He's the owner of the team that can control everything. He can control the coaches, the coordinators, in theory, right? He can control all that. And he wasn't just alleged to have bet on one game or influenced one game, we'll say. The offer was $100,000 per loss, according to Brian Flores. And rest assured, the Dolphins lost a ton of games that year. So that number is likely in excess of a million of dollars, at least what was being offered. So if established, we've said it before on this podcast, I'm sure we'll say it again. If established... Stephen Ross should lose his team if you're just following the trajectory of punishments. I don't know. I, I imagine you and I are on the same page with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in fairness, I did say there was some selective enforcement here, but quite frankly, with the Ridley you know, situation, he admitted to it. There was a paper trail. It was an open and shut case. The NFL didn't need a year to investigate that so the the brevity of the investigation was, in fact, appropriate. But by contrast, the Ross investigation is going to be based on oral testimony, right. credibility. And, of course, and I promise you no one's receiver Ross is not going to be sending tweets that he did it. Yeah, I guarantee but, you he's not but, but, it. but there could be there could be third party witnesses. And of course, the consequences involved. It's a much more, Uh, elongated process where the commissioner has to make a recommendation to the uh, executive committee uh, to uh, forfeit Ross's ownership interest. It's a much more elongated proceeding with many more tentacles involved than what was at issue in the Ridley investigation, which was an open and shut case. So we may not hear anything about the Stephen Ross investigation for a while, but unless there's some digital evidence, I don't know how the nfl can and know mike florio on pro football talk is assuming that there's something there but unless there's a witness to this i don't see how they can disgorge ross's ownership interest or make him sell the team absent electronic evidence or a credible third-party witness okay
0: so, so let's let's wrap up on watson let's move over to lockout the last note at least uh, newsworthy wise Tony Busby, uh, the attorney for the 20 plus women, has mentioned that eight of his clients will be subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury. Quote, they will gladly do so. So, you know, we're full steam ahead. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll keep tabs on that one. OK, so let's move over to, over to our third topic. I know we have so much what, what to watch for, um, but uh, let's let's do this one. Dan. We are now in the next phase of Major League Baseball's lockout. I say next phase because I think we are actually now, for the first time, getting closer to missed games. What I mean to say, we talked about this last week in our mega episode with Rob Dibble. Thank you to everyone that reached out. We had a lot of fun recording it. Major League Baseball put a deadline last week, uh, February 28th. They said, if we cannot get a deal done, we're going to have to cancel games. Okay, so they got close. You guys know know, what happened. They moved the deadline another day back. And then Rob Manford did this press conference where he's smiling and laughing. And he says, we have to cancel opening day. What has come out since then is that Rob Manford kind of in a sneaky way, canceling open day doesn't mean canceling games. It just means canceling open day for March 31st. So If you had plans to travel to opening day on March 31st, you're going to have to move it, but you can move it to another day. Because we're going to have opening day in a different day, and we're going to have seven inning double headers. We're going to put games on the weekends. But right now, Major League Baseball, as of today, as of the time you're listening to this podcast, still plans on having 162 games. So that was; these were all kind of a farce. The the deadline, I think, is the new deadline is March 9th. They don't come up to a deal, but by March 9th, they're going to have to cancel games. So I've said it all along: what the owners are doing is just inaccurate, right? I don't know or misleading. I think misleading is probably the word. The the canceling games will have to come at some point. It hasn't come yet. But I think, Dan, and this is where I wanted to get in with you. It speaks to a negotiating tactic. They're trying to apply this pressure on the players to say, hey, if you guys don't accept this deal, you'll look bad to the fans. But it's really backfiring time and time again. And I've been a part of multi-party depositions, cases that we've settled in the seven figures. You never want to be seen as a liar when you're on the other side of the table. It's just going to make things much more difficult, and it's going to cause the thing to go on for longer than it needs to. And I think that's what baseball has to really fear. I think Major League Baseball is really doing a disservice to the players and to fans with these fake deadlines. And, like, we have to cancel games. It could be the first shortened season since the lockout, you know, since the strike of 94-95. That's
1: not necessarily true. They could still pack in all 162 games, and I don't think everyone realizes that. Yeah, I mean, historically, the use of double headers, you know, can make up a lot of lost time. You can you can you know condense the schedule. You can place, uh, you can tack on games towards the end of the season, extend the end of the season, start playing the World Series in November. So I don't I don't think we're anywhere close. Well, we might be close, but we're not at the point where a 162 game schedule is impossible. And if they have to play somewhat of a shortened schedule, losing you know, eight games or 10 games, that's not going to jeopardize the season. But what really is stunning to me, and I I haven't really weighed in on the on the lockout dispute. I've missed a few of these episodes, but I was around from 1994. I remember it vividly. The Yankees were cruising in first place. And then, you know, the season ends in August. And at that time, there was so much vitriol and anti-player sentiment in the mainstream media uh, that, It's stunning to me how now 27, 28 years later, there's this, and I'm going to use, I'm going to use Ben Strauss's words from the Washington Post, this stunning shift in how the media covers the Major League Baseball labor strife. And I would encourage everybody to read an article in the Washington Post from Ben Strauss yesterday, where he highlights how much has changed in the media coverage of the lockout. And and now MLB is is almost in a position of being cast as the villain almost across all corners of the media. I mean, did you see that photo yesterday of uh, Dan Hallam and then two other MLB executives that were going to a meeting? The photograph alone was like a suggestive photograph. It, It depicted these individuals looking very sinister, like they were cartoon villains walking into a meeting and so much has changed that even jeff passan who's now come under fire for some of his quotes and some of comments on jeff yeah we've we've got comments we got to talk a lot about jeff i love jeff but this is what this is what he wrote in a recent column that if you went in this is an exact quote if you went in and got the next 1200 best players in the world the product would suffer greatly but if you handed Major League Baseball teams over to any 30 competent business people, the sport would not suffer at all. Actually, it might improve. It doesn't take a billionaire to leverage a spot in a legalized monopoly with profound Built-in revenues,
0: Dan. You sometimes you read my mind in ways that it's scary, Dan. We we got to get to it. I saw it on Sunday, and I see this story from Jeff Pass, so much so I had to tweet about it. This is a a story.
1: I many credits from Bill Madden, who I think is a, a report. I think he's with one New of the New York Daily News, but veteran, um, veteran, legendary baseball writer for the New York Daily News. So he writes. This is a uh, on March sixth. What a business. I'm told MLB
0: higher-ups and owners outraged over the lead baseball writer for one of their TV partners, ESPN's Jeff Passan, emailing multiple players and agents, imploring them to vote down what he termed MLB's, quote, shit sandwich, close quote, final offer last Tuesday. So, Dan, you know I'm in the weeds here. So, I saw that. I was doing a couple podcasts that week, and I don't—I actually don't remember which one it was, but I knew that Jeff Passan had called, had had referred to something with respect to the lockout, and I thought it was this offer as a shit sandwich. And I remember hearing on the podcast and I stopped and I'm like, that was kind of funny. I'm not sure how Passon can get away with that because he works for ESPN. ESPN is the mothership ESPN. You know, uh, I've worked for big firms in my career. You know, you can't really bite the hand that feeds you. If you have a client, right. That's, you know, you can't go on media and, and talk poorly about the client. But Dan, I have sports clients who have, you have, you know, your own clients. I, you're not going to hear me on the podcast, you know, speaking poorly about them, I I can, you know, I have free will to a lot of extent at the firm that I'm at, but you, you certainly, I don't think I could do what Jeff Passant did. If ESPN was a client of my firms, I couldn't go out in this scenario. I guess Major League Baseball is a client of my companies. I couldn't go out and say they're handing out shit sandwiches to people. I couldn't go out and say that, hey, if you replace all of the owners, baseball would be fine. You know, I... I, that's I, that's I
1: a true statement. That's a true statement. No, There's nothing
0: it's, controversial it's, it's about true, that. It's true, but... Passan, it's crazy that Passon is saying that. So, you know, what I said, and I meant it, you know, that Jeff Passon, he's the hero baseball needs, but not the one it deserves, because it's crazy for Passon to be saying that he's putting his job in jeopardy by making a comment like that. And and I believe Bill Madden's report that owners were that were incensed by it because I was surprised. And I'm like, I love that Passan said it. Because he should be someone that's technically, quote-unquote, independent. He doesn't work for the union. He doesn't work for the league. But I'm shocked that he said it. And I I don't think he's going to be disciplined for it. But, you know, I was worried for a period of time that he would be. He
1: shouldn't be. Everything he was saying is true. Shit sandwich? Of course it's a shit sandwich. Baseball's revenues have gone up 30% between 2015 and 2019. We're going to ignore the pandemic year because that's an outlier. Baseball's revenues have shot up consistently since 2015. Yet player salaries. During that time, same time frame, have gone down five percent. Of course, it's a shit sandwich. Of course, the product would suffer greatly if you replace the top twelve hundred with the next twelve hundred. And he's not alone in saying that. It's completely the truth, but it's emblematic of really what's going on throughout the media industry. And I think it's really important to understand why this is happening. You know, the outcry over Jeff Passon's commentary. Where was the same outcry when Murray Chass? Was the baseball writer for the New York Times. He was consistently, consistently. I wouldn't say in the pocket, but he was extremely pro-management oriented. Chris Russo, Mad Dog Russo on on uh, on Sirius, very partial to the league's position. So there's enough to go around, but I think some of what's changed between now and 1984 is we know how much money the league is making, we know, we know where the revenues are, maybe we didn't really appreciate that back in 1994, we know how much teams are being sold for. They're being sold at many multiples of what they were in the 1990s. Uh, Steve Cohen just bought the Mets for $2.4 billion. And I think another key variable, which Ben Strauss's article may not have raised is I think there may be some heightened sensitivity within the journalism industry as these big conglomerates are basically slashing jobs left and right. And, you know, basically, you know, firing, uh, laying off journalists all over the country and replacing them with like video content and and underpaid or lower paid younger employees. So I think there may be some heightened sentiment within the journalism world. Well-founded that now, you know, why are we siding or favoring, you know, these billionaires who are obviously benefiting in incremental increases every year while player salaries are going down. There's no sympathy for the billionaires in the current era of, you know, media jobs being slashed left and right. So not only it has, has the, you know, industry, the media industry changed so much since the 1990s, but the information we now have and the presence of social media to circulate this information and amplify it is dramatically different than it was in the 1990s. And the and Major League Baseball is losing a public relations war by greater lengths than the field lost to Secretariat in the 1973 Belmont Stakes.
0: Hey, Dan, you, you, you make that comment. We keep this in. See the picture
1: behind me? Secretariat. It's,
0: that is Secretariat signed oh, by Ron, Ron-, Ron Turco, the jockey, winning by that famous uh, that famous length. 31 lengths. It's the final segment of the podcast, and we'll call this a day. What to watch for. And um, Dan, I'll kick us off. I, I do this once a year. It's become now a tradition. Law Madness. Last year, uh, I saw a you know law school. I'll shout them out. University of Baltimore. They did a sixteen seated bracket, and it was like the top one. It was like the top one L case. So I saw it. I thought it was a great idea. So I gave them a lot of publicity, and we made people vote. And the finals, Dan, was Leonard versus PepsiCo, a new case, versus Paul's Graph. Paul's Graph won the Dynamo. Everyone knows Paul's Graph. Fireworks going off. No pun intended. Paul's graph wins. So this time around, Dan, I talked to my New York law school students, and I said we got to do it bigger and better. Everyone that knows sports knows you can't have a March Madness bracket with 16 teams. You need to have 64 teams. So we did a full-blown March Madness bracket. You can find that on my social feeds, uh, on the content Detrimental social feeds, and New York law school social feeds. Dan, that bracket. I don't know. We don't normally talk about our metrics because we don't want to brag. That bracket. I've been sharing my metrics with my students. Has been seen over two hundred thousand times. So, listen, I we love combining sports and law. You are you and I are usually on the sports side of the law, but I am so thrilled to uh, you know bring bring the normal just lawyers law Twitter into our into our sports world. So that thing's blowing up. It's gone viral, and I know the people at New York Law School are very happy. What do, what do question, you think about the bracket?
1: Yeah, I question some of the rankings. Listen, I'm thirty uh, years. So you're not alone. You're not alone. I'm I'm 30 years removed from being in law school. I graduated in May of 1991. But you're gonna you're gonna have some of your one seeds are highly questionable. (laughs) Um, Leonard versus PepsiCo,
0: uh, and then the high ranking Dan in in the 2021 Lust Law Madness, it made the finals with Paul's graph. So it's listen, it's had a track
1: record of success. So bracketology, they know to put it up there. Is the rule of thumb, cases that are temporal, you know, that are gonna be sort of that that relate just to those times that maybe the, for example, Iqbal, the pleading standard, you know there's gonna be another another Supreme Court decision on that topic in 20 years. Those cases are not, that case is not gonna be taught in CIVPro in a hundred years. Paul's graph will, Marbury versus Madison. Cases at a foundational. There's just simply no respect for the old ones here, uh, for the you know for the old guard. Those cases have stood the test of time. In my opinion, just like with a Hall of Fame, you got to have a minimum period of time <laughs> where cases ineligible for consideration. You can't add Obannon today. <laughs> we don't know what the landscape's going to look like in 50 years. Yeah, you're you're a a guy, I hope it. <laughs> I hope i hope brown versus board you know board of education and roe v wade stand the test of time and they and they do but in terms of the legal complexity i don't think roe versus roe v wade is the same has the same usefulness as a law school teaching vehicle as let's say international shoe yeah in in terms of social uh you know justice and 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 equal rights under the law and women's uh, you know, rights and control over their own body, they're not in the same, they're not on the same level. Obviously, Ro, Rovers, Ro, Roe v. Wade is one of the most important cases in American jurisprudence, but as law school teaching vehicles, I would submit that, uh, you know, Sullivan versus New York Times, uh, Paul's graph, Panoia, those cases, uh, those th- those those judicial decisions are you know based basically five tool players that are going to be five tool players forever they're going to be on every all-time list and you have to rank them more highly than you did yeah but i got it but listen i'm not i'm not denying that but i will say
0: with respect to leonard versus pepsico it's a it's a 1999 case so i had it in law school it was a cool case i'm not going to get into all the facts but here's the basic premise Pepsi put out a magazine that said if you collect certain Pepsi points, it's a cool case. This bracket was the most memorable one L case. So I found this case to be very memorable, and I, and maybe and you know, I'll tell you the facts, and maybe Daniel change your tune. Maybe Leonard versus PepsiCo is the Gonzaga of of the March Madness. They're starting to make a run. They're coming out of nowhere. So Leonard versus PepsiCo is this interesting and the one seed. A one seed, Dan, Pepsi PepsiCo. Let me defend it. I didn't, I let the students pick it. I'm very hands off. You know how I handle conduct detrimental. I defer and I'm very, I'm not a micromanager. And they said, that's the most memorable case. So who am I to say no? So Pepsi puts out a book. It's a, it's a magazine. It says Pepsi points. And I guess when you opened up a cap of Pepsi, you know, it, it said you had five points, 10 points, 20 points. So in this book of points, it said 7 million points, or maybe it was even a commercial. I'm not sure what it was. I think it was a book. But it said, if you collect 7 million Pepsi points, you get a Harrier jet. You you don't even know what a Harrier jet is. It's an Air Force jet. It's like a legitimate jet jet. So some psycho, uh, Leonard, basically went Pepsi crazy. and bought all the Pepsis in the world. And this psychopath actually collected $7 million worth of points. And he goes to Pepsi, he goes, where's my Harrier jet? And they said, well... That was obviously a joke. We weren't actually going to give you a Harry or Jenny goes, well, what was the joke about it? I actually went and I collected all these different Pepsi points and you know, that that's the premise of the case. You can actually look that case up. I'm going to teach our listeners something. Go look up Leonard versus PepsiCo. You'll learn something. It's a great case. It's an amazing decision. But the, the question is whether that offer was made in jest or whether it was real. It's a yeah. cool case. No other case like it. Roe versus Wade, Griswold. You can tell me a million of these, Of you know, those, that line of cases, Brown versus Board, Plessy versus Ferguson. There's a number of those cases. How many cases do you have, Dan, where somebody collects 7 million Pepsi points and almost gets a Harrier Jet? That, Dan, is a cool case. I think it's worthy of a number one seed.
1: I submit. How many brackets do you have where Murphy versus NCAA isn't even included in the bracket? You know what, Dan? Hold on, hold on. How can I take your (laughs) bracket seriously if you have Leonard versus PepsiCo as number one, but nowhere, not even as a 16 seed, you have the most transformative sports and gambling law case in U.S. Supreme Court history, Murphy versus NCAA, which created the phenomenon known as legal sports betting across all 50 states. And moreover, that's not just a sports betting case. That's also a commandeering decision that that could have application on 10th amendment related issues in so many other contexts uh, that's your number one seed and it didn't even it, what is it in the nit dan, know, dan we, we a slight the problem. NIT.
0: and you know i'm a fan of sports betting but we have a slight problem if you finish 500 on the season and you get ousted from your conference tournament in round one you can't make my bracket i'm sorry it probably should have been in jokes is that it probably should have been in
1: um, yeah, Ted Olson of all people. And he argued, he orally argued that case. Is this a, is this, is this a Ted Olson anti, no, it can't be a Ted Olson bias because you do have Bush versus Gore. And he argued, Mr. Olson argued successfully on behalf of, um, you know what,
0: this is, this is year two of lust law bans. We expanded to 64. I'm happy to expand the field. If I ran March Madness, we'd have 90 teams. We put more teams in. We'll, we'll do it right next year. We'll continue to improve, but we're going to have fun. Each day it's going to be voted on Instagram stories. So, you know, uh, I'll right. keep posting the day-by-day results. Dan, let me turn it over to
1: you. What is your what to watch for? How about a what not to watch for? I mean, over the past weekend, news surfaced that a second taxpayer lawsuit over the relocation of the Chargers to Los Angeles was filed in a San Diego Superior Court last week. There was a there was an earlier suit brought in January by two former, uh, there was a city attorney and former deputy city attorney for the city of San Diego that found a client who was a business owner and they stepped in to file a taxpayer lawsuit against the NFL, uh, the teams and the Chargers over the relocation of the Chargers from San Diego to Los Angeles. They're following the blueprint or the template laid down in the St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit, where instead of bringing it under the federal antitrust laws, as Jim Quinn did in the, in the Raiders case, they followed the state law angle and are arguing that the NFL didn't follow its own relocation guidelines when they uh, approved the transfer or the relocation of the charges to, to, to LA in 2016. So it's purely a state law complaint based upon breach of contract, unjust enrichment, those same types of theories. But the reason I'm not getting too excited about this case is it's a taxpayer lawsuit and we know in these kind of taxpayer suits the ultimate remedy not only being sought in the complaint, but ultimately which would be settled for is money only. This will never reach the point where a new expansion franchise is bandied about as a settlement uh, you know a settlement chip to get the case to, to go away. There's no prospect for settlement here. The reason why the lawyers brought the case is so that they can get their contingent fee money because they're collecting any monies that they collect via judgment or settlement are gonna go into the city of San Diego treasury and the way the lawyers make money and the only way they make money is by getting a legal fee based on having successfully prosecuted the suit. But unlike the St. Louis case, the reason I'm not watching this one is I think there are two crucial Uh, barriers to success here. Number one is the issue of the statute of limitations. Uh, The city and county of St. Louis brought their lawsuit against the NFL over the Rams relocation in 2016. They brought that lawsuit within one year of the relocation decision. Here, the San Diego taxpayers have waited five plus years before bringing the uh, lawsuits at issue. And most statute of limitations are going to allow a lapse period where you need to bring your claim within a period of four years, otherwise you waive them. And the argument that these plaintiffs are raising, I don't think is a credible one in, 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 in as to why the statute of limitations should be told. They're taking the position that they didn't realize they had a claim or that the last element of the cause of action didn't come into play until former charges executive Jim Steig gave an interview recently in which he said that it was uh, uh, Dean Spanos' intent going back to 2006 that the charges were going to move all along to Los Angeles. That was in the works going back many, many years ago, and therefore it made the relocation you know, decision-making a complete sham, and that's the hook that these plaintiffs are using to get by or to to, to overcome the four-year statute of limitations. I think that's kind of a not a realistic... Uh, that's not a very strong argument in my book because the focus isn't on what the Rams thought. The focus should be on what the NFL's decision-making process was. And even if the Rams had wanted, even if Spanos had wanted to move all along, the fact is that it was the NFL's decision in applying the guidelines that drove the decision whether or not the the, the Chargers should be able to relocate. So I don't think this recent revelation is going to get them out of the statute of limitations uh, quandary, and then there's the issue of the waiver as part of a. Uh, you know, Dan, you want to jump in here? I don't mean to go on this long soliloquy, but this well, this case doesn't stand on all fours with the Rams case for sure. You're, you're funny, Dan. You prefaced it with a, what not to watch for,
0: and I'm like, okay, not going to watch for it. Let's. Okay.
1: Well, I'm giving you two reasons why you <laughs> shouldn't watch for it. Uh, I'll take the one. first
0: one. You know, we haven't, Dan. We have enough sports law. I don't need you. If you want to give me 10 reasons, I, I'm good with one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One, well, there's not, there's not going to be any new franchise here. There's going to be a statute of limitations defect. And number three, there's the issue of the waiver back in 2004, uh, the city negotiated, um, there was a commitment that the city of San Diego had to make a minimum ticket guarantee. And there were some other provisions that were onerous And the city bargained for an amendment to the existing lease agreement in which the, Ticket guarantee was was, you know, just given away or, or you know, rescinded. And in return, the city would agree not to sue over anything relating to any future relocation of the San Diego charges. So the city may very well have waived the right to sue in 2004. Personally, I don't know if the city's waiver on that issue is enough to foreclose a taxpayer lawsuit, because as I've written before uh, on some of my commentaries on conduct detrimental, uh, the history of the relocation policy, if you look at some of the testimony and some of the language in the statement of principles that the League entered into with with the joint, uh, entered into with the League of Cities, is that the relocation policy is not only intended to benefit the cities, the team and the league, but it's also in t- intended to protect the local fan base. So uh, while I'm not quite convinced that a waiver argument would succeed here, I still think the statute of limitations issue makes this entire lawsuit, both lawsuits, a non-starter. So Dan, you've convinced me I will not watch for that. I will actually, anytime I see San Diego
0: Charger taxpayer lawsuit, um, I'm just going to ignore it because you've, you've convinced me. Okay, Dan, let us put this episode in the books uh, before we head out. Again, podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the country. I know we got some feedback that everyone loved. You know, our last episode, we were talking about the PGA Tour, talking about some kind of maybe issues that you're not following just by looking at ESPN. Everyone knows about Brian Flores, Deshaun Watson, um, Calvin Ridley. But sometimes we need to tell you about the topics that you should be paying attention to. So the PGA Tour is one that we are watching very closely. And Themis Bar Review, you guys trust us. Because we tell you the bar prep companies, we you trust us to tell you the top stories. So we are telling you. We're not just saying this. We do like the people at Themis, um, and we like, and they like us. So you know what? Uh, we're going to continue prepping them. But I will say this is an open casting call. If you are a gambling company and you do want to, you know, do some work with us, we we're in the vortex. So um, no, listen, we are open for business. We are contact kind of detrimental. Okay, Dan, anything to add before we
1: put this episode in the books? No, Dan, if I go on any longer, uh, your voice may disappear completely. I want you to save some energy for the rest of your workday, because I know it's early in the day still. You have half the day remaining. So I think this is an action-packed episode, really heavy on sports gambling and NFL-related legal issues. So uh, I'm ready to call it a a moment. But if you have, call it an episode. So I would just implore our listeners, if you liked what you heard today uh, and, and have been following us. Uh, leave us a review on Apple, and uh, we greatly appreciate it. And thank you for your ongoing support of Contact Detrimental. We aim to bring you really our our best commentary and 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 just top line sports legal issues with very strong opinions from both me and Mr. Lust. To Dan's
0: point, in the in the if you're in the podcast app, you just swipe five stars. It takes one second, but does a world of good. Podcast has continued to grow and grow, and it's because of people like you. Um, you know, we got a, the next future of sports lawyers that we're trying to support here. So we want to get the show as big and as bad as possible. We
1: a five stars. We could, but you
0: know, you'll let, you let the bar very low. We'll take a five star. We'll bother you next time. You could
1: say we're pretty, pretty good or something. We read them. We read them. If
0: you want to get yeah. directly to us, I promise you we'll read them. Okay. So that'll put this episode in the books. Dan Wallach is on social media at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan lost at Sports law Lust. The show. At Con Detrimental and the and the website ConDetrimental for all of us here at Con Detrimental, we will see you next time on another episode of Con Detrimental.